First John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what great truths are written on these pages, and we do ask for you to enlighten our minds by your spirit this morning. Would you give us the truth that you want us to have? Lord, I do ask for faithfulness now, and I do ask for humility, Lord, that as we look at this text, that we would be compelled to follow you and to get one degree closer to obedience. Lord, we do long to see you, so we do pray that you would hasten your coming. But until then, Lord, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of an effect called the Dunner-Kruger effect. There's the chart that you can see there. It's, it's a these two uh, psychologists won a Nobel Prize for uh, coming up with this, which is very intuitive for us. It's very obvious to us sometimes that the higher the confidence you have and the more experience over time, the more of an expert you are in a particular field. One of the things that this study or this effect shows is that people with low ability in a task tend to be overconfident in that task. I mean, I studied, me and my wife studied piano at uh, undergraduate level for four years, and before that, each of us for about 10 years. So 14 years of piano training. But there's now an app that allows you to play the piano. It's called Simply Piano. And you can be an expert in five minutes a day for the next year. So when me and Esther look at that, we think, well, the Dunning-Kruger effect. You can be very overconfident in a low ability. Some of you have seen this in your own workplace. Some of you are electricians or plumbers or some of you are doctors or nurses. So people who have expert level ability in this effect, in this study, tend to underestimate their ability so the more expert you are, the less likely you are to be overconfident, perhaps just underconfident, uh, or confident up to the measure. So one of the conclusions of their experience was that without self-awareness of one's own thoughts, we cannot objectively assess our own ability. So in the example with the piano, 
Somebody who's learned how to play piano over a period of three months now thinks that they're an expert and now they can play cold plays, whatever. Or they can play the latest hit by Lady Gaga. And that's very sweet. But 14 years of piano training is going to be always trump three months of using an app. Just like doctors who have studied in their profession and specialized over a period of 15, 20 years, when you walk into their office and say, now I searched this on Google, we'll look at you and say, okay, we've got some work to do. What, what about this is so important for our study in 1 John this morning? The source of your confidence as a Christian really matters. Let's think about two different types of confidence. We have internal confidence as Christians, and we have external confidence. John seems to be emphasizing an aspect of our internal confidence. And here's the problem. Christians tend to overestimate their heart's ability to guide them successfully through the Christian life. They rely too much on their heart. So this is what we see in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 to 24. This could lead us to one of two extremes, relying on your heart to guide you in your spiritual walk with the Lord. We either rely so much on ourselves to obey God's commands that we can't measure up, and we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We just say we can't follow any of his commands. They're just too hard. So we stop obeying his commands altogether. That's one extreme of using your heart to guide your Christian life. Or we become so overconfident in our ability to perform good Christian tasks that we forget Christianity is about total dependence on God, not ourselves. And even more insidiously, we can come to a point of trusting in our own heart that is, our emotions, our experiences, our thoughts, we come to trust those things, and perhaps because of our education, our pedigree, our occupation, our relationships, our physical appearance, or our personalities, we can altogether get rid of God. It's a very dangerous place to be as a Christian. So John tells us that our hearts have an important role to play in the Christian life but not a central role. Our hearts are not the ultimate authority when it comes to our confidence of faith, of belief. God is. So that's what we see in 1 John chapter 3. But there's also an external aspect to our confidence. So where you get confidence from outside of yourself. So inside you get it from your heart. Your heart testifies with your spirit. We're going to see that. That you are truly a child of God. That's an important aspect of confidence. But there's external confidence. How do we get, what do I mean by this? If the heart functions as the internal source of confidence for the Christian, what are the external influences of our confidence? Think about it. What do you hear about almost on a daily basis? Or what is the source of consumption for information that you possess? Perhaps the external source of confidence for you is your phone. What if somebody were to say, you cannot use your phone for the next month? Where would your confidence go? 
perhaps to find locations. GPS, you can't use GPS for a month. Some of you are saying, no, I, I, I've, I've lived here all my life, I can do that. What if I were to say to you that you can no longer access your bank account via a web browser or an app? You have to go into the bank. Some of you are, some of you are thinking, well, that would be pretty insane. What, what if I told you to cut off all communication, no more texting, no more pictures, no more phone calls from your phone? Can't do it. It's not allowed. Well, I hope you're getting uncomfortable because one of the, the, the most influential sources of external confidence that a Christian has is their phone, unfortunately. Now, some of you, you do use the Bible for uh, your source of confidence when you read through it, but that's probably 5% of what you do with your phone. The rest of it is up for grabs. What about media? Do we gain confidence from media? And I'm not just talking about the news, I'm talking about media like different types of equipment, TV, computers, other electronics. There's not much confidence that we can gain from media, from the news. It almost appears, I mean, it appears as though every week when some expert says something, another expert comes and says the exact opposite. We can't trust the media as our external source of confidence. What about social media? Can you believe everything that is posted on social media? What, they tend to what tends to happen with social media is they become silos or sounding boards for our own confirmations, our own biases. So you tend to gravitate, according to uh, certain psychological studies, you tend to gravitate toward people you agree with, right? So what ends up happening is Facebook or Twitter or these other places, social media, become your image. What you want to hear is what you subscribe to. That can be very dangerous for the Christian for many reasons. External influences over our confirmation, over our confidence in the Lord, can actually make us less likely to depend on the Lord and more likely to depend on the voices that we hear in our culture or in media or through movies. So perhaps it is culture, perhaps it is media, social media, friendships, family, finances, possessions, education. These are external influences over our confidence. And these are important to Christian confidence. They are. But nothing can be more important to external confidence, to the external influence of the Christian, than God. And so, this is what 1 John chapter 3 challenges us with this morning. We have to have confidence in the Lord. How do we get it? Do we get it from our heart, or do we get it from outside? from something beside God? The answer is we get our confidence from the Lord. So just briefly, I wanna review this test of confidence. But before that, we have to see that there's a lineup of tests that we've seen in 1 John. So 1 John presents multiple tests. And what are they, what are they meant to do for you? If you read the letter of 1 John, what are these tests meant to do? They can help you evaluate if you have true saving faith. That's what 1 John is about. He says several times in this letter, 
by this you will know, or by this you know, several times. So he wants you to be certain. He wants you to be confident about something. So the first test we saw is, do you recognize your own sinfulness? Do you understand that you are at enmity with God by default? Or what about this one? Number two, do you recognize Christ for who he is? Do you recognize that even in your sin, Christ loved you enough to, loved us enough to give his life for us? Do you know who he is? Number three, do you obey Christ's commands? Do you obey the one who saved you? Number four, do you hate others? Do you hate others? That's strong language, but it's biblical language. It's the language that John calls us to evaluate in ourselves. Do you hate others? Number five, do you love the world instead of God? Do you love the world instead of God? We saw that in 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Number six, do you stay with Christ and his church? Do you stay with Christ and his church? Number seven, do you practice sin or do you practice righteousness? That's what we see at the beginning of chapter three. And last week, last week, Pastor Andrew helped us to see that loving your brother can be a way to affirm, to have confidence that you are a Christian. It's, it's a really sweet way the Lord has given. It's a mechanism the Lord has given to, to give us confidence. And so last week we saw from chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, do you love your brother in need? Do you love your brother in deed and in truth? So these are really important questions, and I hope you use this as a diagnostic tool. As you think about what it means to love the Lord, what it means to obey him, what it means to love one another. But today we're looking at 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 to 24. And I started in uh, verse 18. You'll see that the breakdown in this chapter says 19 to 24 is a new paragraph. But if we understand it like that, it, it becomes complicated. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 to 24 is the most difficult part of 1 John to interpret because there's so many variations in Greek manuscripts, and there are certain emphases. Now, I don't think that that poses a problem for us as Christians, because there's nothing doctrinal at stake here, meaning nothing is being said that, is, that we would disagree with flat out. He's not changing, the, the, the manuscripts are not changing theology. But it's important to understand that these verse numbers and these chapter numbers are not inspired. What do I mean by that? They're not part of the original Greek. It's not like John was told, okay, all right, John, hold on a minute. Hold on. Where are you at right now? At a, yeah, that's 19. We're going to call that one 19. God did not tell John to do that. These verse numbers and chapters came uh, from a sweet monk in the 15th century who decided, I'm going to help everybody by just putting these references in. So what I like to do when I read this is ignore all the numbers. Ignore them. And when you do that, you see that 18 is a more natural connection to verse 19. That's why we started there. Even though we looked at verse 18 last week, we're looking at it again to show us the meaning of this text. And I want you to gather two main emphases from 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 to 24. Two important emphases. So what is John saying? Now, there's, there's two ways to interpret this text, and I think both are right. 
And I don't really call them two interpretations. I think that they're maybe two sides of the same coin. And let's, let's go through the, these two ways that most commentators interpret this. The first way, listen carefully, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 to 24, John is emphasizing God's comfort for the Christian. So God is emphasizing God's comfort for the Christian. You know, a lot of um, Christian men over the years have, ha have taken this view on this passage. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, and John Stott. We'll see a quote from him later. But these men view this passage this way. So in verse 20, uh, John says, Our hearts, if our hearts condemn us, don't worry. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. In other words, that's, the, that's meant to comfort us. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. But not only that, he's all-powerful. He's greater than your heart. So, though our hearts may condemn us at times, though our heart tells us, hey, what you did is bad, you should feel guilty, God will never condemn you. I mean, look, this is from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So though your heart may condemn you, it's okay. God is greater than your heart. So why? Why is this so important? Why is this comforting? Because it's comforting to know that God is greater than our heart. Our heart is not the final ultimate authority. So when you are condemned in your heart over your sin, perhaps for not loving your brother or your sister, how many of you left last week thinking, I have loved my brother and sister perfectly? I have never failed in this respect. Well, some of you may have gone away thinking, I've never loved another person, really, if I think about it, or I've not loved enough. Well. As soon as you feel condemnation welling up in your heart, John says, no, God is greater than your heart. He knows, he knows your sin. And listen, he's saying no, no condemnation. This is Isaiah 55, verse 6 to 9. Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now listen to what the Lord says concerning our salvation. Listen, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, the Lord is great. And his, his view of us in our salvation is very different than our view of ourselves in our salvation. He is going to show compassion. He's going to show love. So in other words, the heart is not the final arbiter of our hearts. God is. So, this view says, let your heart rest assured. Some of you have the NIV that's, in fact, why they decided this translation in the NIV. The, the ESV says reassured. 
the NET, which is the New English translation, says to be convinced. And the NIV says, let your heart rest assured. Set, let your heart rest assured. God will not judge the Christian whose heart condemns him. Doesn't that encourage you to know that God is greater? Right now, God is greater than condemnation that you might feel. So listen to what John Stott said about this in his commentary on the letters of John. John Stott died uh, within the last decade, and he was very influential, named one of the top 100 influential uh, Christian leaders in the last century. And he was an Anglican scholar and pastor. And listen to what he says about this verse, verse 20. Our conscience is by no means infallible, meaning it's not perfect. Its condemnation may often be unjust. We can, therefore, appeal from our conscience to God who is greater and more knowledgeable. Indeed, he knows all things, including our secret motives and deepest resolves. And it is implied will be more merciful toward us than our own heart. His omniscience, that the fact that God knows all things, should relieve, not terrify us. The fact that God knows you and still loves you, that should relieve you. Amen. Let's go home. I mean, that's, that's all we need today, right? Well, that's the first emphasis. The second emphasis in this text, and we're particularly looking at verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Some view this passage as John's way of emphasizing God's challenge to the unbeliever or Christian. This is the more historical approach, so more Christians in history have viewed it this way than the first way. So Augustine, John Calvin, Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry wrote in one commentary Bible, we're going to talk about him in a little bit, and John MacArthur. So the, these, this view is the more historical view. Now it's an interesting view, listen to this. So verse 20, the one we just read, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Well, they would say, in verse 20, though our hearts condemn us, God will judge our hearts more accurately because he's greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So look at, for instance, Jeremiah 17, verse 7 to 10. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its fruit, its roots by the streams and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now listen what he says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is an important question for the unbeliever and for the Christian. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, the Lord knows your heart better than you do and will judge it accurately, unlike you and me. Is there a psalm, perhaps, that 
gives us better insight into what this means, what this looks like, that God knows our hearts? Yeah, Psalm 139. Listen to Psalm 139. We heard a sermon on this a couple weeks ago. But let me remind you, O Lord, Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Even before that, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So there, there goes that part of 1 John 3.20. He knows everything. What about the first part of verse 20? When our heart condemns us, God is greater. Listen to this, verse 23. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Who can discern our hearts but the Lord? I can't discern my heart. You can't discern your heart. It's, it's a jumbled mess of emotions, of thoughts, of sin. And yet, God knows it all. God knows it all. Another reason for this view is because in verse 21, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, John says, Beloved, he uses a term of endearment, and then he says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So by implication, if your heart does condemn you, you don't have confidence before the Lord. And what we need as Christians is confidence before the Lord. And so if verse 20 is a contrast to verse 21, then that means our hearts are not free from condemnation. That means we are condemned. We stand condemned before the Lord. And that is not a good place to be as a Christian for a very long time. It is not good for you or for me to sit and to, under our own conscience, feel the weight of God's condemnation over our sin. That would reveal we are not the Lord's, depending on how long that process takes. So this is a warning, potentially. It's a challenge. So in this view, the heart is not the final arbiter of our hearts, God is. That's, that's true. Those are both the same in both views. But listen to this. So if one's conscience is not clear before God, they are failing to have belief in Jesus and love for the brothers. And if they are failing to obey, they stand condemned. Not just by their own conscience, but by God. Like I said, this is a very, very important understanding of this text. Now that is true. That is also true. We saw from 139 and from Jeremiah 17 that our hearts can deceive us and that the Lord needs to sift our hearts and challenge us to obedience. But I want you to hear what Matthew Henry, how he comments on this text. This is a 17th century Puritan. He was an Englishman, and he wrote a whole commentary on the Bible. You can actually get this in our bookstore, and it's free online. It, it's a whole commentary on the Bible. He just went from Genesis all the way to Revelation and just commented on each of the verses. Really interesting, really helpful. But listen to what he says about this verse. Our heart here in this passage, he's referring to here in this passage, is our self-reflecting judicial power. 
by which we can take cognizance of ourselves and accordingly pass judgment on our state towards God. And so it is the same with conscience. Conscience is God's representative, calls the court in his name and acts for him. If conscience condemns us, God does so too. God is a greater witness than our conscience and knows more against us than it does, than conscience does. He knows everything. If conscience acquits us, God does so too. Now, I'm holding these two views in tension so you understand that sometimes we come to a biblical text that's very complicated to interpret, and we just have to sit and be content with the fact that there's two emphases here. And we need to just try to marry those as, small, as much as we can in humility and say, Lord, we don't really understand. We're going to walk away from this and trust that your word is good. But I will say, some of you do need to be encouraged this morning and comforted. But some of you need to be challenged. And this text, I think, appropriately does that. But what does John tell us about Christian confidence? That's what I want us to see next. What does he tell us from this text about Christian confidence? Can you have Christian confidence? Can you be certain today? And does John want you to be certain today? Does God want you to be certain today of your Christian confidence? The answer is yes, he does. And we'll see why. But let me briefly give you a definition of Christian confidence. We're not talking about confidence in terms of competence, what you're able to do. Some of you are very competent and skilled, but some of you are not confident in your walk with the Lord. Like I said, perhaps you've not loved others. Well, if you're not confident because you've not loved others or you've not obeyed the Lord, well, you're in the right place. You're right where the Lord wants you. He wants you to hear this. He wants you to be confident that you can be in the Lord, that you can be obedient, and that you can love your brother. But listen to this. This is a definition of Christian confidence based on 1 John. Christian confidence is the boldness and courage, it's the boldness and courage to stand before God's presence only on the basis of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Christian confidence grows when Christians obey God's commands and love Christ and fellow believers. Where do I get all that from? Did I just make this definition up? Well, I put all the references for you to see there. First John talks about Christian confidence throughout his letter. So I'm, I'm looking at what John is saying, and I'm just distilling that, synthesizing this definition for us to see. So I want us to listen to a couple of, a couple of things John says. Just listen. Don't follow along for now. You have them there, but just listen. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Again, by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, John says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
Again, by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also are we in this world. Does this sound like a writer who wants to instill confidence or fear? He wants to instill confidence. He keeps saying, by this you will know, by this you will know, by this you will know. By the time you get to the end of the letter, if you don't see it, if you don't understand it, it's not John. It's not God. The problem is us. In our verse, listen to this, in 1 John 3, verse 19, he says, by this we shall know. And then at the end there again, I read it already, by this we know that he abides in us because of the spirit he has given us. So this is important to understand that throughout the whole letter, John is trying to give you certainty. He's trying to give me certainty of these realities. It's beautiful. It's, it's so interwoven in John's writing. He says it, and then he explains it. And then he says it, explains it. But I want you to see there's two questions that, that I think we should ask ourselves on a daily uh, basis. These are the Heidelberg Catechism questions. And there's, there's several. There's dozens of these questions. And the first question is this. Listen to this question, and I want you to see something. The question is this. If I were to ask you today, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, if you don't give me this exact answer, that's fine. But if it's not close to this, then I wonder if you truly have comfort in life and death. Listen to this. This is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, listen here, this is confidence, the Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Isn't that a beautiful answer? Somebody says, hey, you're going to die, and are you going to go to heaven? Something similar to that answer about how God keeps you, how Jesus Christ keeps you, and how the Holy Spirit keeps you. That's the answer for the Christian. That's what a Christian has confidence in, that God will do this. He said he will do it. What, what about this question? This is question number 86. Listen to this. You've been saved. What should you do now as a Christian, now that you're saved? Well... Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Have you ever wondered that? Why do we do good works? Here's an answer. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole